I was there. Way, I was there. We stayed till the end. Like, we stayed till they sang Carmen, Ohio. It was too late, even with the fallback, because then we got home, and I didn't fall asleep for another three hours. So I'm tired today. Very, very tired. But I, uh, I'm going to bring my energy. So you guys got to meet me. You guys going to meet me there? You going to meet me there? Bring my energy? Um, one of the things that uh, we did this worship night, which you just saw a video for, when Kevin and I started talking about that, we, uh, we talked about selling out uh, Nationwide Arena for that. That was like the vision. We're like sitting there. He's walking over there. We sat down. We're like, what do we do? Have a night of worship. And we just hope everybody come, comes in and we'll just pack it out. And then like, that was like a good idea for like a couple days. And it was like, oh, for the first one, we might not want to have less people there than ushers. Um, and, you know, him and I were talking, and I said, you know, one of the things I'm learning is that one of the keys to happiness, this is not the key to happiness, because I have that, but you have to buy my book to get it. Um, this is one of the keys to happiness is managing your expectations, right? And so what we said was, like, let's just do it here, do the night here. And uh, we were like, you know what, it's our first one, and, and uh, we'll just see what happens. And if we have to put the screen down because only 100 people are in the room, then that's fine, man. We're going we're gonna to worship God. We're going to express God, express how much we love God. The whole room was full. It was more than there are in the room now. And we, we kind of walked away from that like, this is really sweet. Like, this is like, this is incredible. And so we found, like, I found, like, as I go through life, like, um, managing my expectations, it keeps me happier. Like if I don't overshoot and then like stuff happens, then good. It's like it's better to um, underpromise and overdeliver, right? And, and I've learned that that's true. I mean, David just got up here, if you missed it, you're watching online, and said that he's going to go to the funny bone. Manage your expectations. <laughs> he also said, this is Joel's message is really good. <laughs> Manage your expectations. Um, it, it is what it is. But here's the thing, is it's election week, right? And this is one of the ways that I view uh, politics. And so I've had a lot of different people, you know, even reach out to me and say, who are you going to vote for? And, and there are people in this room. There are people in this room. For, if you're shocked by this, then you really need to be here and you really need to listen to this. <laughs> but there are people in this room who believe that if you don't vote for the other one, if you vote for the one and not the other one, then like you're the antichrist. Like I have had people that have told me, and if I don't vote for X, and I vote, you know, obviously against this other person or not for this, then I am like sinning, like I'm evil. And I, all I can tell you is that like, um, there are people in this room who are gonna vote for both of these candidates. Um, and I believe with all of my heart that you can love God, you can be an honest Christian and vote for either one of these parties, okay? I believe that with all my heart. And, and I know that there are bad things about both and there are better things. And I'm not saying that the election isn't so important and I am gonna go on Tuesday and I'm gonna vote for one of these people to be president. But I have to tell you that like, the way I look at politics is informed by this idea of managing my expectations. Like, I just don't expect uh, whoever wins or whoever, you know, the, 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 I didn't expect and don't expect 
that these, these winners or the losers or whoever, I don't expect that they're going to make this change and everything is going to just get flowery and better. I don't expect that. I expect that certain ones will do certain things and some good will happen and I expect that certain ones will do certain things and it's really bad for our country and so I am going to vote for one person, but I am not expecting that one person to make everything better. I don't. And it's not just because I think that that person is incapable of doing a decent job, even if they win. It's because I don't put that type of onus on a president. I don't live my life thinking whoever the president is, so goes my life. (laughs) That's just not the way I live. And the way that I think about this, the view I have of this, is not that it's unimportant, but that it's just not as important as something that I learned uh, from, from Scripture in the New Testament Paul writes a letter from prison um, to the Philippians. And this, this letter, when I was studying, it's often called praise from a prison or joy from a jailhouse because Paul, in the last part of his letter, whilst he's in prison, whilst he's in prison, he writes this. He says, rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice And he's like in prison in the worst circumstances of his life. And he's like, I rejoice not in my circumstances, not in who put me here, not in the leadership. I rejoice in the Lord. Like I find my satisfaction in what God is doing, who Jesus is, and that's where I live. And this is the message is that every person has got to get there. Because you will lose all your joy if you put your hope and you have huge expectations for said candidate. It's just going to happen. I just don't expect it. Not saying it's not important. It is. There's some very important pieces, but this is my disposition towards it. You got to manage your expectations. Uh, Often when new movies come out, I look on Rotten Tomatoes, and then when I see that it gets a good score, then it sometimes sets me up for failure, right? Because you go into a movie, and, and uh, I went to a movie this weekend, and uh, Hacksaw Ridge, which is a true story, directed by Mel Gibson um, about World War II, and it got, I think, almost a 90 on Rotten Tomatoes, and so I expected it to be good. Um, and, but a- having a 90, like I've learned, like, oh, there might be parts I don't like about it, or it might not be, you know, as good as, you know, Captain America Civil War, which nothing is. But, like, it's going to be good. It's going to be good. And actually, it, it literally it exceeded my expectations, and I walked out really almost transformed by this movie. And uh, you, can, you can go see this movie. Obviously, this is extremely violent movie. Like, I, there's not a more violent movie that I've ever seen, you know, Saving Private Ryan, it even pushes, pushes the bar past that. And so I don't want to like spoil alert you, but it is about a true story, or I do want to give you a spoiler. It is about a true story. And I want to tell you a little bit about this, this story um, as it unfolded because it, it impacted me greatly um, uh, this week. Uh, it's a story about a guy named Desmond Doss who was the first conscientious objector to carrying a weapon and being in the military. And he ended up doing such amazing things without having a weapon in his hand that he ended up receiving the Medal of Honor. He was the first conscientious conscientious objector to receive the Medal of Honor. And it's an incredible story. And uh, kind of boil it all down is here's a kid who loves uh, people, loves his country, and says, I'm gonna go fight, but um, he gets 
put under a lot of pressure and essentially persecution from the army, from his battalion, because he won't carry a weapon. And they beat him up in the middle of the night. They, they try to make him quit because they just don't understand him. And essentially, he is, he is like scandalous to them. He is just outside of the norm, and they just don't understand how he couldn't go over and take a weapon and defeat a certain evil. And he says in one of the parts, he says, you know, I figure that this world could use uh, someone in the midst of all of us destroying each other and, and tearing each other's, each other's lives apart, someone that's willing to go and piece them back together. And he was committed to being a medic, and he wanted to be a medic, and he was like, I'm gonna go and help people. And so uh, he actually, through an amazing sequence of events, he almost gets court-martialed and kicked out, but then he gets, he gets allowed back in, and he ends up in the Pacific Theater um, in Okinawa, and he gets, uh, and his battalion gets sent to uh, this place called Hacksaw Ridge. Hacksaw Ridge. And what it is, is it's basically the battleground that is the kind of the last line of defense before the Americans could take Okinawa. And if they take Okinawa, they kind of win the war. And this ridge is literally, I'm going to call it 200 feet. They, they get taken to the bottom of this ridge. It's 200 feet. And as they're getting ready to go up this, this ridge, uh, the other battalions are driving away. And, and they're, uh, they're, they're taking away. And only like 20% of the battalions survive. I mean, it's the most blood, bloody location, most bloody spot um, uh, at that time in that year uh, in the Pacific Theater. And basically, they just know they have to take this ridge. And the way that it sets up is there's basically this rope wall that goes up 200 feet, literally straight up vertical cliff. And then there's a plateau at the top. And on that plateau is the most bloody, awful, violent battle um, in the Pacific Theater at that time. And at certain times, battleships are like firing in shots from, uh, from the sea to just blow that whole area up. There's tons of friendly fire. And it is, it is, it is legit like the worst of human conditions. And you can imagine these, these teenage boys, uh, they, they have to climb this 200-foot rope wall. They just climb all the way up to the top of this thing. And when they get up there, um, they are just faced with the most intense battle that you could imagine. And Desmond Doss is right in the middle of that. And he watches, um, you know, the majority of his, his team, his battalion, get just ripped to shreds. And it's, it's, it's violent. I mean, it is the most awful of human conditions. You can't fathom it. Uh, there were certain people that were alive and witnessed it that, uh, that said that what they saw in this movie depiction was so accurate that it, they had to get up and walk out because it's just, it, it is exactly what happened. And to think that it actually happened is just wow. But Desmond Doss is there, and what happens is, is he's stuck on the ridge. They go through a day, and then they sleep at night, and they wake up again. And the next morning, the Japanese send in reinforcements and basically push the American forces off of the ridge. They have to retreat. And somehow in the midst of all that, Desmond says, I'm not going to retreat, and he finds a little spot to hide, and he starts to try to help people who are laying there wounded and left for dead. And uh, at one of the points, he finds a guy, and he, 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 um, he starts to give him morphine, and the guy lost his, both of his legs, and, and He's like, I'm going to get you out of here. And one of the other medics comes over and says, just give him morphine and let him go. He's not going to make it. And he's like, how do you know that? And essentially, like, he makes himself, like, I'm going to do this. And he takes this guy and takes him to get sent off to get saved and, and, and get some treatment to see if he has a chance. Well, after everyone else leaves and he's up there alone, he gets to this point where he's like, 
freaking out and he doesn't know, he's trying to help people and he's like, God, I need to hear your voice. God, I need to hear your voice. What, what am I supposed to do? Because everyone else is retreating and they're saying that these guys are all just gonna die and leave them for dead. And there's literally like artillery coming from the, 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 the water on top of this ridge, blowing it all up. And he's sitting there on the edge of the ridge and he's, and he, and he, and he's like, God, give me, tell me what to do. And he hears men screaming. And he's like, okay, that's it. What he does is he starts to go in and find people who are alive. And his only prerequisite for taking people and trying to get them to safety, to get them to hospital, is if they're alive. Because he believes that it's his job to give people a chance. And so DOS becomes a scandal in every sense of the word. He was a conscientious objector and he was completely misunderstood and he was scandalous. Like people did not understand that. And they're like, there's no way. Then he ends up on this ridge and all the other people are saying, just leave him for dead. And he can't, he has to go against the grain And he goes and he starts to get these guys and drag them to the edge of the ridge. He ties this rope and lowers them down. There's two guys just waiting there and you see in the background a body coming down. And then another body comes down. And then another body comes down. And the next day, his battalion is going, I thought these guys died on the top of this ridge, but now they're all laying in a tent and they all say, Doss got me, Doss got me, Doss got me. And it ends up, Getting to this point where he's there for a day and he like figures out this way to lower him down. And he's like 160 pounds and he's carrying these completely helpless men and, and putting them down this ridge and his hands are ripping from this rope kind of thing that he does to lower him down. And he gets to the point where he's so exhausted but there's so many in need that he just, every time he lowers one down, he says this, he says, please God, help me get one more. Please God, help me get one more. And you just see inside of him that he is not going to let someone who's wounded, he is not going to let someone who's dying, he is not going to let them just sit up there and not go after them and not play a role in trying to get those people to an opportunity to have another life. And he's misunderstood. And it's scandalous. And the other medics are saying you shouldn't do it. And, and what are you doing in the first place? You're not carrying a weapon. And there's a scene where he, like, he, gets, he gets confronted in the middle of the battle because it's like, now you want a weapon? And he's like, no. He's going to help. And what I have found is that for me to do my job, and honestly, as a follower of Christ, and if you're here today and you follow Christ, then you might be able to associate with this. And if you don't follow Christ and you're kind of peering in like, should I follow Christ? Then what I want to share with you is is a tension that exists for the Christ follower, for me and my role, and hopefully what I share with you will inform you to follow Christ closer because I believe that For me to be a great leader, for me to be a follower, I have to be misunderstood. Like I have to do some things that other people who follow Jesus might go, that's scandalous. That's a scandal. You shouldn't act that way. You shouldn't do that. I have found that there are things that, that inform me from the text and it's the scriptures basically like kind of like lead us to say you should emulate, follow, participate, behave like Jesus. Like you should go through your life and try to live out a life that models what Jesus lived. And I believe that if we're honest as followers of Christ, that for us to do that, we have to do some things that 
other people of faith and other people um, in the church might go, you're not allowed to do that. You're not allowed to do that. That's not right. That's, that's scandalous. And there are people who go through time because after, after a while, uh, this guy, Doss, he ends up saving 75 people and wins the Medal of Honor. He goes from a, like a scandalous, just person that's misunderstood to a superhero. I mean, the superhero pinned by the President of the United States with the Medal of Honor. He was decorated. He was remembered for being wonderful. And he had to go through a lot to get there. And so what I believe is that everyone in this room needs to have an adjustment, including myself, to what it means to live our lives and follow Christ. To emulate who Jesus is, to live that out, and put ourselves in the position of scandal. Now, this is not like me saying, I just want to do something scandalous for scandalous sake. This is me looking at Mark chapter 2, the beginning of Jesus' ministry. In the book of Mark in the New Testament, is the, it's the shortest book. It's the most action-packed book because the author is basically saying, here's what Jesus did, and then he went and did this, and then he did this, and then he did this. And ultimately, it's the picture of, and so should you, and so should you, and so should you. And if you look in Mark chapter 2, you're going to see, like, man, Jesus was scandalous. Like what we're gonna look at, and I'm gonna lead you to this part, Mark 2, 16. I'm gonna lead you right up to the point where he's doing something that in that time when he did what we're gonna look at together today, it was his 30,000 erased emails. It was his um, video uh, from the bus. Th that, that's what we're gonna look at. And at the time when he did those things, religious leaders, people looked at him and went, no, 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 that's not what being a godly person looks like. And what I want to just lead us all towards is that we have got to move closer to the disposition that Jesus has towards people who are struggling, towards this broken world, towards ourselves, if we are going to actually be the light of the world that we're supposed to be. In Mark chapter two, it's amazing. Like, please go read the scriptures. Please do it for yourself. Like, God will change your life when you go and just crack this thing open. He will change you. What you see in Mark chapter two is Jesus is, he's starting to, to have a ministry with people and he's starting to do some things. And one of the first things he does that, that you need to read again if you haven't read it or read for the first time and see it in a different way is he's so um, interesting what he teaches that people follow him and flock to him. And there's a scene where he's in someone's home and he is teaching and he's teaching about the kingdom of God. And there's so many people interested in what he's doing that there's no room. Like literally you just got to think of like, you know, he, he's, he's in this house and there's people like leaning in the window to listen and people out in the street saying, be quiet, be quiet. He's saying something, he's saying something. There's no way to get in. And some friends uh, of a paralyzed man are like, we gotta get our paralyzed friend to Jesus because if he really is God and he is who he says he is, then he can, he could, he could heal him. And what they do is they climb up on the roof of this house and open up the top and they lower him down and Jesus says something that's incredible. There's a man there who's paralyzed 
He didn't like choose to come there. His friends brought him there. I mean, I've heard this talked about before. Like, I mean, obviously he couldn't stop him, right? I mean, he's paralyzed. And they go, no, we're taking you to Jesus. We're taking you to Jesus. He's just like, no, no, no. They're like, dude, we're going. We are going. You can't stop us. And they put him in front. And Jesus says something remarkable. And you need to look at it again for the first time. It says in the text that Jesus looked up to the friends that lowered the paralyzed friend. And he says, because of your faith, he will be healed. Because of your faith, he will be forgiven. You know, it struck me as I read that recently that this man does not lower down in front of Jesus, look at Jesus and go, will you forgive me of my sins? Will you, will you help me walk? That's not what it says. His friends lower him. Jesus goes, man, these guys are going all out for their friend. And he says, because of their faith, you're healed. Then the religious leaders go, he can heal? He, how can he heal? He can forgive? How can he forgive? That's blasphemy. And Jesus says, look, the reason that I'm gonna heal him is to prove to you that I have power that's bigger than you can imagine. I'll physically heal him, but essentially the same thing is like me saying, your sins are forgiven. It's just as easy for me to forgive you of your sins as it is for me to heal you from, your, from being a paralyzed person. Well, I want you to see my power. But in no sense, in no sense ever, does he ask for forgiveness? Essentially what Jesus does is in that moment, he graces this paralyzed man with an unconditional forgiveness. He says, you are forgiven. You are healed. The man doesn't say anything. He couldn't walk there himself. He didn't even necessarily want to go there. And Jesus forgives him. But doesn't he need to ask for forgiveness? Jesus doesn't say. He just forgives him. Doesn't he need to want to be healed? It doesn't say. His friends brought him. The picture here is, is every one of us are paralyzed. Every single one of us are helpless on our, on our own. We all need community. And essentially, Jesus offers us forgiveness, and it's unconditional. It's not, hey, man, listen, I want to talk to you. I know your friends just lowered you down. But like, for me to forgive you, I need to see how much you want it. Okay, first of all. When you get forgiven and you can walk away, what are you gonna do? Tell me first, because I need to know what you're gonna do with your new ability to walk. He doesn't do that. He doesn't go, hey, so in order for you to be forgiven, you need to know the answer to four questions about the Old Testament. Because in order for you to be forgiven, you have to understand some things about God. You have to know the answers to the test. You need to know the information before I'm gonna forgive you. Doesn't do that. He goes, wow, they have a lot of faith. Your sins are forgiven. He just forgives. He just loves. No conditions. What happens is, is people see him do this, and they're mesmerized. They want to follow him. They literally start following him all over. Starts walking along the sea. People are chasing him down. There's a point where he comes to a man named Levi who's a tax collector. He goes up to this tax collector, and he says, Come and follow me. Come and follow me. Now, the tax gatherer, we've talked about the tax gatherer before. Essentially, what a tax gatherer is, is someone who is Jewish. Matthew or Levi was Jewish, and he turned his back on his own people and God to join the Romans and be kind of a mediator between the Romans and the Jews to take the Jews' money and give it to the Romans. 
So this is the greatest outcast. This is a people who are extremely pride, who God has a huge plan for, and Jesus goes up to him. Not only is this person not doing the things that they should do, they are doing the opposite. They are turning their back on God. Their momentum, their behavior is wrong and sinful. It's outside of what the regulations of the law that they had are, and it is directly in contradiction to what God has for his life, and he chooses to do it anyway. And Jesus Christ walks up to him and says, come on and follow me. Just come right with me. He doesn't go, hey man, I'm gonna ask you to follow me. All these people are gonna walk. So like, when you follow me, like we need to get this whole thing together. So here's what we're gonna do. You and me, we're gonna go to the temple. So we'll go to the temple first, and then all the money that you've taken from the Jews, I want you to give it back to all of them. And then I want you to stand up there, man, and I don't know if you can talk or not. Like, I'll feed you lines, but you need to stand up in front of all your community and apologize and repent for being this horrible person in their lives. You need to do that. Jesus goes, hey, come and follow me. Now, when Jesus asks Levi to follow him, he is essentially inviting him into the priesthood. Just stop. Every time I do a wedding, I was with a group of friends last night, just people that I know, new acquaintances. Every time I, they ask me what I do. What do you do? You're a pastor. Oh, okay. They look at me and they think, well, it must not be a real pastor, which is fine. That's fine. I don't want to be a real pastor. Like, whatever that means, I do, but I'm not. And literally, within a minute, every single time, where'd you go to seminary? Where'd you go to seminary? And then I go, oh, gosh. And I list off, like, the four places I went to school. And, I, and nobody knows of them. And I'm like, yeah, it's really nothing. And they're like, huh. I don't think this guy's the real deal. <laughs> they just don't talk to me anymore. That's fine, because I was hanging out with my son. But, like, <laughs> Levi has no qualifications. And Jesus invites him. He doesn't just say, hey, man, your sins are forgiven. He has zero qualifications. He invites him to join his team. What? That's crazy. That's that's scandalous. Just that, just the invitation is outside of the norm of what you and I do with people. If you're going to hire a lawyer, you go, where do you go to law school? And they say Capitol, or they say Ohio State, you go, okay, they're real. You would not hire a lawyer to oversee some misdemeanor in your life, they're like, hey man, I need a lawyer. Where'd you go to school? You know, I just like, I just got this Encyclopedia Britannica's and studied them to just till I'm blue in the face. And I just wanna study, help you with the law, bro. I am not gonna give my $300 an hour to you. I'm gonna go find someone who's qualified. Think about it. What needs to change about you and me because of Jesus's invitation to the most unqualified person to join his team? Most of us might sit back and go, oh, yeah, but mm, mm, we got to, come on, if this person is unqualified, don't they need to, like, have some behavioral changes and exhibit positive growth? Not for Jesus. No exhibit of positive growth. All bad, all wrong direction, all bad behavior. You, I want you on my team. Yeah, but you're the church. Don't you want to you make it look bad if you have people who are like sinful people on your team? You kind of got to like wipe it up and make it look good. Not for Jesus. 
Not even close. But then it goes to a whole other level. You have to understand when Jesus is walking by the sea after he has helped someone who's been paralyzed walk, a lot of people are watching him. And so he could do easily, if he was just trying to make a point, that like, I do love sinners, but I'm going to go fix him. Then he would do a, a, an invitation personally to Levi, and then he would take Levi off the grid and get him squared away. But he does the opposite. He goes to his house. He says, I want you to go, and we're going to go to your house. I want you to bring all of your friends there. So all the people are watching Jesus. You have to understand, Jesus is popular. He's the most popular kid in school. And he goes to the most unpopular kid in school's house. And all of their friends come over. And Jesus, it says, that he is reclining with these people at, at the table. Reclining. Now, I used to think like reclining, right? Like re reclining was like, you know, all of us do this. I still do this. I sit at the table and I lean back in my chair and my wife's like, don't, don't do that. Don't do that. And then like my kids do it and I do it and then two minutes later I do it again. I mean, it's just, and recline, right? You know, I'm the kind of person, like I like soft seating for dinner. Like I like to go to places where there's like couches. You know, like the Brio like area, like the little patio where there's like a couch. He's like, bring, you know, bring, bring the food out here and we'll feast. This is the way I, I like that. That's fun to me, okay? I want to sit on soft seating and eat something that's really good, like a steak on a couch. Mmm, doesn't that sound perfect? Who wants to sit at a table and cut your steak? Sit on a couch. Recline, you think it's that. Leaning back, chilling. Here's what reclining meant. Actually, like I, I, I'm studying the scriptures all the time, reading new stuff. Not to say that to brag because I, I, I'm saying it because it's fun and like I learn new things and I've studied this passage so many times and I learned something new. The word reclining in the literal translation, this is literal, means putting on your quitters at your neighbor's house. That's, that wasn't literal. Anybody who have their quitters? Like your quitters are your sweatpants that you don't want anyone else to see you in? Okay, I have like the most, I'm gonna call them offensive quitters of all time. Like when I wear them to the office on like, like Wednesday, kind of the middle, it's like the end of my week, I kind of like, you know, take the day off, sleep in, go work out, walk in with my quitters on. Everyone's like, oh, geez, are you okay? No, seriously, my, they're sweatpants that are like awful. But they feel like someone took the greatest blanket of all time and sewed them into the shape of pants, and I get to wear them. That's why I love them. Reclining in the text, seriously though, has the idea of not leaning back at a table, but literally what it means is to put your feet back and to lay on your stomach. In the text, they were reclining. Here's the idea. Jesus is like laying on the ground. Like hanging out, like talking about like whatever, like the voice. I don't know what he's doing. Like he's just like there talking, hanging out, and he is reclining. Essentially, he blends completely in to the most outcast group in all of Israel. The only reason people know he's there is because there's a lot of people there. That's it. Otherwise, it's just another party at Levi's house and nobody knows, but there's people spilling. So here's the picture I want you to get. He's reclining, and he is becoming now the, the most scandalous leader in Israel, and he's hanging out with the last people that you or I would have on your team. 
And then the Pharisees, and here's the picture I have in my mind of how this plays out. Like, this is kind of like the movie Neighbors, right? And like with Seth Rogen. And like Jesus is hanging out with, with, with like, um, who's the kid? Who's the, the, Zac Efron. Jesus is hanging out with Zac Efron in the frat house. He's over there, and the Pharisees pull up. They're like the cool kids in the red Wrangler Jeep. They pull up on the street, and they see people all over the place hanging out. And they say this, and they define Jesus' scandal. When the teachers of the law, who were Pharisees, the word Pharisees means separate ones, their whole standard was we only do exactly what the Bible says, and if you don't do what the Bible says, you're an outcast. Levi and the people at his house are not just people who are not doing what the law says. They are doing the opposite. The, the Pharisees would have just talked to a commonplace jaywalker and been like, you deserve to be in jail. Let alone someone who is on the Romans team hurting the people of Israel. The separate ones come along. We are better than you. We follow the law all the way. And essentially in their mind and in their heart, their behavior, their adherence to the law, they believe saves them. They believe, it, they believe it makes them righteous before God. So they pull up in their wrangler. They see the Pharisees saw him eating with the sinners and the tax collectors. They asked his disciples, because the disciples were many, not just 12. There's a bunch of people now they are following. That's all that word means. He healed people. He called Levi, and a bunch of people went over to Levi's house. The followers. Could be 100 people. All the people are hanging out with Jesus. They pull up in the red Jeep. Why is he eating with you guys? Why is he talking to you guys? He's eating with you guys? Can you imagine, like, they asked that question to the people that he's eating with. Just get into the text. They pull up in the Jeep. The guys that are hanging out with Jesus are, like, spilling out into the yard with no shirt off. Seriously, that's, that's what the picture's like. And then they're like, why is Jesus hanging out with you? And he's, the guy's like, that is a good question. That is a good, that is good. And Jesus knows that they're doing that. So he stands up from his reclining spot. He goes to the front door of the frat house and the red Jeep is out there. All the people that he's spending time with can hear him. They're behind him. They're in the front yard. The Jeep's out there. And Jesus, across the people, in an audible, loud, clear voice goes, I know what you're thinking. You're thinking that because you're righteous... I should be spending time with you. This is my paraphrase. I should be spending time with you because you're righteous. I claim to be God. And you think that your righteousness means I should spend time with you because you think that's what you've earned by doing all the right stuff. And then he says this. you got to get this picture. He says this in front of all the people. They're all there. They can hear him. He says out loud across the lawn to the Jeep and all the guys that he's hanging out with can hear it. And he goes, I didn't come to call the righteous, but sinners. And then he takes it another step further. He says, and actually, it's not the healthy who need a doctor. It's the sick. In one moment, because Jesus has spent time with these people, Jesus is afforded and able to actually say in front of all of these people, 
I'm, I'm here with the sinners. I'm here with the, the tax gatherers. I'm here with the lawbreakers. They're the ones who need me, not you. Not you. You can just imagine all the guys like, yeah. Yeah, he's here with us. Wait a minute. Did you just call me? Yeah, you're right, I am. You're right. I mean, he's right. Jesus is cool, though, man. He's here. You got that stupid Jeep. That's, that's what they're thinking. They're thinking, Jesus reclined with me. They're thinking, Jesus loves me. They're thinking, I like this guy. All the religious leaders are thinking, scandal. This is scandal. This is scandal. This is 3,000, 30,000 emails. This is a video. This is what? This guy's a leader? No, 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 no. You don't eat with tax gatherers and sinners. Misunderstood. What Jesus exemplifies in the beginning of his ministry is I came to be DOS. I came to help people who are going to die. I came to be with them. I'm here for them. I'm not just going to only look at people on the battlefield who are struggling and go, the only way that you can come with me is if you, without your legs, stand up and walk. He picks them up and says, come on, let's walk. We'll go to your house together. Unconditional. Jesus goes on. You got to look, read Mark chapter 1, 2, 3, and 4. It's beautiful. Jesus goes on. He tells a bunch of people his closest disciples and then others who are listening about a story about the kingdom of God. And he says the kingdom of God is like seed and, he, and, and the sower goes out and he throws the kingdom of God out there. And what happens with those seeds is sometimes it gets trampled on and then the seed doesn't take root and grow. And sometimes a bird comes along and eats up the seed so it doesn't, it doesn't grow. And sometimes a thorn comes and chokes it out, and, and, sometimes, and, and, and so that it doesn't grow. It's like it bursts forward from the ground, and then a thorn comes and kills it. And essentially, they are like, oh, that's interesting. And then they go back, and they're like, Jesus, what did that mean? And he tells them it too again. He says, the kingdom of God is like me spreading my love, spreading grace, spreading unconditional gifts, not asking anything from people, actually expecting that people will not often turn or receive this message, but it doesn't stop me from throwing the seed. I am gonna cast my, this. I am gonna share the love, I am going to have no prerequisite for people. When, when, when Jesus went to his house, he didn't say, first do this, then do this. He said, I'm coming with you. And later on, it says that he called 12 of them. That means that the people that were at Levi's house, not all of them turned their, their, their lives around and followed Jesus. Jesus didn't go to the house expecting that that has to happen in order for him to show up. He went knowing, I'm gonna share my love, I'm gonna recline, I'm gonna tell these guys how much I love them, and I'm gonna see that some of them become followers of me, and I'm gonna trust God with the fact that the seed sometime doesn't always spring up and take root and bear fruit, but that's not gonna stop me because I'm unconditionally loving people. I am not going up on Hacksaw Ridge and going, they better get their stuff together before I drag them out of here. I am gonna unconditionally love them and take them to safety. That is Jesus. 
What is your posture towards the broken? Is it, they better get it, I don't wanna be associated? What is our attitude towards people who are struggling? First of all, if you think that in the story that you're not one of the tax gatherers that Jesus is sitting with, then you're one of the Pharisees. Jesus goes on to say that their hearts are further away from God than the tax gatherers. Ultimately, Jesus levels the playing field and says, everyone is broken. Everyone is struggling. Everyone is wounded. And I came to help everyone. And if you don't turn around and follow me, I'm still going to love you unconditionally. And when you live that way, listen, this is my message. When you live that way, when you spread the love, knowing that not everyone will turn their lives around, people turn their lives around. I'm telling you, that is a mission type of life. What's your mission? My mission is to lead people into a growing relationship with Christ. My mission is to bring the kingdom of God. Then if you have a bunch of, hey, you better get it right first, you will fail. Doss's mission was to go up and say, I'm gonna help anyone who's suffering. Unconditional is missional. Unconditional is missional. There's a story that comes on later in the story of Jesus' life where there's a wee little man named Zacchaeus and he just loves him and spends time at his, at his house. And ultimately, Zacchaeus and his whole family come to know God. That's one where the seed fell he spent time at their house. He fell in love with Jesus, and so did everybody else fall in line. But Jesus also, at the very beginning of his ministry, went to a guy named Judas and said, hey, follow me. Here's the money. I would trust you. And after three years of being with them, he turned his back. Three years. Maybe he's the picture of this, uh, this seed going into the ground, and, and it's, it's starting to come forward, and then the fruit comes out, and then thorn comes up and chokes it out. Jesus is outside of time. You know the scriptures actually communicate that Jesus was in the beginning. That he spoke and he actually created the heavens and the earth. So what that means is that when Jesus goes to recline at someone's house, he knows that a lot of them are not going to turn their hearts over. But it doesn't stop him from going. I grew up with this idea that like information was part of discipleship. That like it's my job to make sure that people understand that they're sinners. Well, you gotta love them. You gotta, you gotta love them, but you gotta grace and truth. And what that meant, because that's beautiful, but what that meant was you gotta tell them that they're wrong. You gotta tell them that if they don't turn around, they're not worthy. That is not the way Jesus lived his life. Unconditional. How many of us in here are willing to be associated with people who are sinful according to another group of people? And then when you start there, do you get soon to a place of 
you know what? I'm exactly the same. You know, you are the tax gatherer. You know, I am the tax gatherer. You know, I am, I am the sinner. I am the lawbreaker. And if Jesus would have had some type of condition that I, some kind of hoop that I got to jump through before I have a relationship with him, I wouldn't have one. I wouldn't be doing this. I wouldn't be standing here. I wouldn't be, I wouldn't be a part of this because I would have failed. But I'm just like you laying on the top of Hacksaw Ridge about to die and Jesus comes along to seek and save those who are sick, those who need a medic unconditionally. What this does is, is, is it puts me in a position, it puts all of us in a position to have a different type of scandal. A scandal of grace. A scandal of people looking at you and me and going, how can they associate? And then you and me knowing, I am one of them. And I am going to share love with all. And I'm going to let them be here. And I mean, I honestly like wrestle with the church wondering, I've had people talk to me, well, if someone is in this type of sin pattern, will you let them in the church? What? It's not about letting people in. Let them in the church. Jesus didn't let anybody into heaven. Oh, Jesus didn't let anybody into heaven. Jesus left heaven and went down to earth and met sinners, you and me, right where we are. Are you serious? Are you gonna let them in? No, I'm not gonna let them in. I'm gonna go to them. I, I want a new mindset of what it means to love and be loved and be broken and love each other. 514 Church exists to do this. If you struggle with the unconditional love of Jesus Christ because you think in a sense that you're supposed to have behavior modified before they move into a relationship with Jesus, you don't understand the gospel in my humble opinion and you won't feel comfortable at 514 Church. Because I am good with being misunderstood. I'm good with it. If being misunderstood means that there are people who have lifestyles and decisions and brokenness, I have met with four different people in the past month who have sat with me and told me things that according to a lot of places, you would go, you're not allowed around. And I just look at them and say, I love you. I'm so glad you're here. Jesus is crazy about you. Be a part of this. Because I want to be misunderstood. I'm, I'm, I'm ready for it. If people look at me one day, one day I'm going to, one day I'm going to, when I turned 36, I was on my bike with, with my oldest son and I drove by a cemetery on my bike. It was the first birthday that I ever drove by a cemetery and actually had the thought, huh, so that's where this all ends up. I mean, I'm serious. Like I'd never like been like, that's where this is going to go. And like I pray 
that when I am in a box in front of this stage, that someone stands up in front of me and says, this guy loved everyone. Not just said it, not just information, not just God loves, but a scandal, man. Open arms, open hands. He was misunderstood for how much he loved people. And then I want people to stand up and say, he loved me when I was going through this. He loved me when I was going through this. He loved me when I was going through this. That's my life. And I want everyone in here to be a part of that. And wouldn't it be wonderful if every one of us were known for the scandal of grace? Desmond Doss said, please God, Help me get one more. You know, you know the way he was able to get one more? Unconditional. You know the way that he was able to affect more people and save more people, 75 men? No prerequisite. I love you. I'm gonna do anything I can for you. Misunderstood. Turned into a superhero. Let's pray. Father, in your name today, there are people who don't know you and they're looking at what Christianity is right now. I pray that this picture of who you are would be the most refreshing, wonderful thing, the most attractive thing they've ever seen, that they would just want to chase after you and fall in love with you. And God, I pray for every follower of Christ in here. I pray that, including myself, that we would for certain take the plank out of our own eye before we take the speck out of another that we would not judge, that we would be unconditional, that we would just move beyond our boundaries and beyond our borders into people's spaces. I pray and thank you for people that are in this room right now who live that type of life. I pray for those people that have a soft heart, that they just look at someone and no matter what they're going through, they just feel tender-hearted. They just wanna hug them. They just wanna talk to them. They just wanna give them something. I thank you for people who lead businesses and lead families who have this type of exhibition. God, I pray that every one of us would follow in your wake, that we would be known for a scandal, and it would be one of overwhelming grace. Father, we love you and we worship you. We're here for you today in Jesus' name. Amen.